Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. My name is Dan Francesco. I'm the deputy editor of Cellside Technology. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Anthony Malakian, the U.S. editor of Waters Technology. Hello. Uh, so it's uh, that time of the month again. Pause for awkward joke. Uh, it's the beginning of the month, which means that our features are live on the website. And Anthony and I figured the best way to go about this would be to obviously talk about them. But instead of just rehashing them and going over the content that's already inside them, we pick three questions, two that we're going to ask, that both of us are going to ask each other, and then one kind of specific to the story uh, to kind of give you an outside perspective, maybe something we didn't cover, maybe kind of the lead up to it, stuff like that. So we're going to start with my feature, Open to Open Source, which covers kind of open source software in financial services. So Anthony, why don't you uh, take it away to start? All right. So yes, you can find these. We'll link to all these stories so you can actually read them. Um, for Dan's story, I will say that uh, the, the story itself is very good. It lays out you know, why companies are um, turning toward open source, um, what the benefits are. And then um, at the very bottom of it, if you scroll all the way down, there are a lot of uh, really good use cases, three separate kind of case study use cases um, that didn't quite fit into the story. But maybe to start off with, Dan, why don't you just tell us uh, why, why did you choose this topic? So to start off, this dates all the way back to... About September, when, Anthony, when did you and I both go to Chicago? Yeah, it would have been September. So in September, uh, I was on a panel with Elliot Noma of Garrett Asset Management. And uh, throughout our discussions, we talked a little bit about open source. And he talked about using R. And I kind of went from there and I had an interest in open source. So I had a scheduled a call with him and I spoke with him for a while. Uh, and this was back in the fall. Then I had a string. I was fortunate enough to get a string of cover stories. So I was working on those and it kind of put it on the back burner. And then it's one of those, oh, geez, it's getting late in the month. Got to put together something. So decided to go with open source. And I just found it really interesting. I, uh, I think it's a topic that uh, I think it seems to really be upward trending. And uh, yeah, it just seemed like something interesting based off that initial conversation with, uh, with Elliot. Yeah, and I think it goes to show you um, for the re- for the listeners um, how long some of these stories will actually take. Sometimes, sometimes it's a quick turnaround, and we'll discuss that when we get to my story. But many of the times, it'll be several months in the making where we're just talking to people, um, kind of letting it kind of build up, um, and until it's really ready to to take off the, uh, the the stove. Yeah, I mean, my initial conversation with Elliot, like I said, was back in September. Kind of waited on it. And then I want to say in February, I had just a, not related to this, I had a meeting with the folks at uh, LedgerX talking to Paul Chow, the the, uh, the co-founder and CEO over there, and kind of just brought up open source and that kind of re-sparked it and then kind of went down that path again. But like Anthony said, it's crazy how a lot of these stories, you know, it's a long, drawn-out process. Or sometimes it's not, as you'll see. <laughs> Well, then I guess so. The one of the more interesting things um, that I that I thought in the story is this issue around licensing. So everybody was very positive about open source. No one really had anything negative to say, but there are still licensing and uh, patent issues and legal issues that are going to have to be worked out in the future. You know, you kind of saw the beginnings of that with Sergey Lanikov and uh, Goldman Sachs. Why don't you kind of take us through uh, some of the interesting facts around that? 
Right. So this was something that was brought up to me uh, towards the end of my interview with John Weir over at BNY Mellon, who actually, speaking of Sergei, Le- Sergei Levikov, was at Goldman Sachs for I think almost three decades. Um, and ba- essentially the issue is this is more so with the bigger firms. These big banks, they don't, they're, they're a little hesitant or they're not at all uh, allowing for contributions. They'll open up maybe their library, but they won't take contributions because they're afraid of putting themselves in kind of a, a bad legal situation where someone could sue them over their, uh, their proprietary, you know, saying it's proprietary content. Uh, and essentially what John basically said was that there's just not enough legal casework around this for anyone to kind of want to be the first one to dip their toe in the water. And he gave the example of Goldman, where Goldman opened up its Goldman collections. I forget the exact name, but they essentially opened up their collection, but they couldn't take contributions from the outside world. So to work around that, they donated to the Eclipse Foundation, who then in turn created, you know, with their, they were able to take contributions in it. It was a workaround, but it wasn't a long-term solution. So, you know, in my opinion piece, I kind of, I talked about this, which is in the magazine, where it's something that needs to be fixed because you kind of have these you know these big banks big asset managers taking open source taking open source and you kind of have to you have to give back you have to open up and you have to be willing to kind of take part in the community it can't be you know take 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 without give and to be honest i'm not kind of you know i'm not crapping on these guys because i think that at the end of the day they do want to do this they want to be involved as possible uh it's just a matter of kind of figuring out the legal framework so that's kind of i think the biggest thing to keep your eye on going forward with uh with open source Okay. And then, I mean, obviously, I think you wrote an opinion piece, you had a new perspective on it, and then you have a 2000 word feature. So Talk about beating sure the you, dead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you probably uh, carved it pretty close to the bone right there. But is there anything else that maybe didn't make the story that you think maybe our readers might our listeners might be interested in? So, you know, you know how much I love conspiracy theories. And talking with... Uh... On a side note, one day, if you're ever at a bar with Dan... Get him going on conspiracy theories. You'll think he's absolutely nuts. But go on, man. So, uh, Elliot Noma, who is a fantastic, very interesting man. Uh, he, he's always at our. He's usually always at our conferences. If you see him, be sure to grab him. He runs a uh, Garrett Asset Management uh, hedge fund. Really smart guy. Talking to him. And he kind of mentioned, we, I kind of mentioned, I'm looking for downsides because everyone I spoke to was so high and mighty on open source, how great it was. I'm like, Elliot, what's, what's the deal? Tell me something bad. And he said, well, one thing is bad is that, you know, you can pick an open source project. And I talk about this in the story and it can kind of lead to a dead end. And he said, and you know, specific to financial services, it's obviously a very competitive industry. Every once in a while, you know, you kind of wonder, are firms out there putting out bad code, bad stuff to kind of lead you down a bad path. So I found that very interesting. I kind of pulled on that thread. I asked the guys over at LedgerX, Zach Dexter, and also Paul, um, Zach Dexter, the CTO of LedgerX. And they kind of squashed it pretty quick saying, hey, listen, if someone puts out bad code, it's going to be found pretty quickly because the definition of open source is open. So you can see it. And, you know, jokingly, it's gonna, there's going to be a string of, you know, not so nice comments saying, you know, what's up with this code? This code's bad. Stay away. But it is interesting, you know, we talk about there's no denying how competitive financial services is. So would you really put it past a firm if they're trying to slow down another firm, even if it's just for a couple months or a couple weeks so that they can get out their project quicker, putting out some bad open source to kind of get someone to, you know, 
fall down a, a bad rabbit trail. To, in defense of Elliott, he didn't say he was aware of any of this at all. This is com- sheer speculation, which is why I didn't include in the story. But that's kind of like a small little nugget, something you know interesting that I that I found. Of course, like like Anthony said, it's a conspiracy theory, so I had to latch onto it a little bit. I guess now we'll move on to uh, Anthony's feature, which uh, I really have to say I, I really did enjoy because it's it's topical. It's something that I think affects every single firm in finance, almost every single firm in financial services. And I think it's a really interesting controversy. It's around the CFTC's uh, regulation, automated trading, specifically around kind of this debate on this source code depository and repository and kind of the the big agitations. So I guess to start, and this kind of shows the difference between Anthony's method and my method, uh, at least this month around in writing our stories, talk to us about why did you uh, choose this particular topic? Oh yeah, well, normally I like to have many, many months to put together a story if possible. Um, mm, and, no, many, I might, many months. I might, mm, I might, I might call the very end, that. Until the very, very end to to write the thing. But a lot of times I like to have, eh, whatever, who cares? Like my machine learning article, that was months and months in the making. Anyway, um, for this one, I go down to Boca Raton, and the main story that I was going to work on, I was meeting with a bunch of people down there. It was going to be on, I think I'd mentioned this on a previous podcast, but um, was looking at a risk analytics in the buy side space, um, um, because we saw a bunch of consolidation with BuySam, uh, Axioma, um, Barclays Point being bought up. Oh, you know these kind of things. Just in recently, I was like, oh, you know, there's a lot, of, there's a lot seemingly happen here, and it's all happening right around the same time. A lot of acquisitions. Maybe there's a bigger story here. Go down, start talking to people down there. No one really seemed of interest to it. No one was biting at all. No one had anything interesting to say. The one side note is the worst feeling in the world when you think you have a good story idea and you start circling around into your sources and nobody bites on it. There's nothing more depressing than. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's <laughs> thankfully while I was down there because if if this didn't happen, I would have really been boned. But um, everybody did want to talk about regulation AT, regulation automated trading, and. Um, there was a really good panel discussion that was strictly focused on it. It's the best panel I've ever seen. Even, you know, sorry for our events team and stuff like that. Best panel I've ever <laughs> seen in my life was this panel. Um, I'm, I'm trying to convince uh, the events team here to start copying some of what they did. Then they did a fantastic job. Anyway, um, so our editor-in-chief, Victor Anderson, was in London. He was away on vacation. So... Not only did I have to write a feature, but I had to edit the whole magazine. So I had just a lot on my plate just to begin with. And I was down in Boca, and I had to write up the stories in Boca. Basically, you should start playing the smallest violin in the world for me right now. <laughs> but um, so I got back. I'm like, you know, I just don't have the time to be calling up. You know, for a, sto- for, for a story, I'll usually talk to around 20 or so people. About five to eight of them will make the actual final cut of the story. Just didn't have time to do that. The transcribing of it was just too much. Would have been too much. Anyway, go into it. There's a ton of comment letters, and it's like you know, it's like you're, you. The comment letters are as good as anything. You know, you really get an inside look as to what firms are most concerned about. So, you know, I was like, we have the comment letters. I had some really good feedback from the panel discussion, and I had some good off-the-record conversations while down FIA Boca. You know what? Let's just go from there. So that was kind of the genesis of the story. 
The thing you need to know about Anthony is, and we've talked about this before, comes from a newspaper background. I think deep down, he likes having his back up <laughs> yes, against the wall. He absolutely. likes that, you know, Anthony and I go back to being sports guys and the game finish. It's a seven o'clock game. Your deadline's 930. It's 915. You're walking out of this gymnasium or off the field and you have 10 minutes. Oh, you, you, when we worked at the Journal News, the worst was I, I lived in Putnam County. I hated Putnam County because you had Putnam County had like some ridiculous deadline that you had to hit like 9:30 I think or yep. something like that. So you had to have any story in by 9:30. It's like the game just ended at nine. You're just literally driving and talking to somebody at the office and verbally just coming up with a story off the top of your head. I will say this: I have an insane knowledge of every single McDonald's in all of Westchester, Putnam, and Rockland County because all of them had free Wi-Fi, and I used to park outside all of them to file my story. But that's a story for another day. So, uh, moving on to next question. So, the crux of this story, the the most interesting aspect of it, is this source code uh, depository. It was a stipulation that's put in this potential regulation, and basically, it's asking for essentially the lifeblood of a firm. And with their with their with their source code, and they're saying, listen, we don't we like to separate them, put them in the different parts, because if you put it all together and someone gets it, whether it's an employee or a hack, we're done, we're done, though. That's it. See you later. We're closing up shop. This is it. So what what's going to happen with this? It seemed like the regulators were going to pull away from it and kind of step back from it. But from your perspective, from talking to your sources, what's going to happen with this source code depository? I would be shocked if this went through as as written, really in any single way. The way it's always worked is if you want to, if there's you know something where the Department of Justice or the CFTC needs to see your code, they get a subpoena and you give it to them. It's worked so far, as best we could tell, there's no need to create this repository, which will become a bullseye for hackers to go and aim for, um, much less if it's lost, then you're royally screwed. Um, and as you wrote in uh, the common, as we'll touch on in a little bit here, but the Panama Papers, you know, you think that this information's safe until it's not safe anymore. So I would be shocked if it went through. Amir tried, um, uh, tried to do something like this as well, and they scratched it as well. Um, I'm surprised that they even brought it up. It does make me wonder if you kind of keep on pushing, pushing for it, knowing it's going to get shot down. You know, the old slippery slope is keep on hitting on it, keep on hitting on it, get a little bit, get a little bit, because obviously the government would love to have their hands on this stuff. Um, But I would be shocked if it's in there. Yeah, it just seems like a ridiculous request from the CFTC. Almost kind of, I think we've talked about this on the podcast before. I know I've written about this, but there's really a cat and mouse game between the end users and the regulators of, I'll ask for this much, but really I only want this much. So maybe it was kind of looking to overstep their bounds, knowing that then the end users will be more willing to cut back. You know, you ask for six cookies when you know mom and dad are going to say, okay, you can have three, when really at the end of the day, you only wanted three. That's a little bargaining tip for all you uh, folks out there. That's if, if you're curious. Uh, and then lastly, I know this was kind of something you cobbled together last minute. Was there anything you left on the cutting? What's what's left on the cutting room floor? Anything that you didn't touch on either from the comment letters or from the panel or anything like that? Well, unlike you know, your story, you know, a lot of stories we write are just, you know, they become the benchmark of the topic. So I'm not going to write a whole lot 
of more features specifically around machine learning, maybe around different parts, but I covered that topic. Um, I wrote an article about Python. That article's covered is until there's really something new, there's nothing else to write a feature about. There, are, there will be news stories and stuff like that. Same thing for your story, open source. Boom, that's there. We have it. It's, you know, now you know everything for at least the next, you know, few year, you know, year or two before another feature might be necessary on it. Um, something like this, it's a regulation that will have final um we'll have the final results on by the end of the year hope that that's what uh, the cftc uh john carlo uh chairman uh, john carlo says uh he hopes for is by the end of the year to have the final rules written um so there will be a lot more to write about and for this story there was a lot that was left out as with any feature it's more interesting to write about where you button heads where where's the where's the conflict than the agreement there was a lot of agreement um, with this. Generally, you read the comment letters, you listen to the people up on stage. No one wants the extra regulation, but they do agree that it is for that many things are for the best. So there was a large amount of agreement around um, the pre-trade risk controls um, and just greater standardization um, all around. Um, and in general, for you know self-trade prevention guidelines, there was a lot of agreement on it. Um, but the one thing you also do find is that every single person, they're like, I agree. I love this rule. It's a good rule, you know, except for this one piece here that really affects me and I'm going to have to start dealing with it. God, that that is a shitty little rule. <laughs> Sorry, that is a sucky little rule that you have right there. Um, so I think that there are a lot of things that will go through and that will be good for the industry. It will create cost, um, but that's just the nature of the beast. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. And then moving to, I guess, you know, you touched on it. I wrote an opinion piece on it. I'm sure you have an opinion on it. Uh, the Panama Papers. Uh, so for those of you, the uninformed, a massive data leak occurred. Um, it was handed over. It started with, this will be a good one. Dan, Dan is terrible at pronouncing things. He's absolutely, like, he gets names of companies wrong all the time. So go ahead. Take a, take a, wow. Sudeutsch Zuting. Zeiting. Don't think I'm going to get a uh, request to write for them anytime soon. <laughs> so Deutsche Zeitung, a German newspaper, uh, was the initial con- made the initial connection with the source, and then they handed it over to the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, and then The Guardian got involved, the BBC got involved. Long story short, 11.5 million files were handed over, and after a uh, you know a year of essentially looking at it, they essentially released this investigative journalism piece that, long story short, long and short of it, powerful, rich people don't want to pay taxes and are using a allegedly, sorry, I should say allegedly, are using Masak Fanesca, a Panamian law firm that's the fourth largest (laughs) offshore law firm. I'm just going to stop talking. So, uh, Anthony, what are your takes on the Panama Papers? Yeah, I mean, obviously there isn't, it's, it's shocking in its scale. Obviously, how many people are brought in? You've already seen the prime minister. Uh, I don't think he's fully res- stepped down. I think he just stepped down from certain duties, but I'm not 100 sure. I, I honestly, I didn't read. I just read the headline on that one. But you're going to see a lot of fallout around this. Um, it spreads all around the world right now. You know, it seems like uh, high-profile Americans are safe. I'm sure that there's a lot of people sweating out there. No, a lot of people sweating. So a lot of people sweating. You know, for me, I think that one, it shows that still, you know, for all the talk about cyber attacks, everything like that, 
the biggest the biggest leaks we're seeing usually end up being you know somebody that's inside that takes the information and then distributes it to a media outlet and so that's going to still be a cause for concern um dan it looks like you have something to jump in well yeah no i i mean i wrote the opinion piece on it and i think this direct points directly at reg greg at i mean you look at it uh this this law firm is the fourth largest offshore law firm in the entire world so how what do offshore offshore law firms how do they make their money it's secrecy it's protecting their clients names it's protecting their clients assets it's you know it's nobody knows don't don't know don't tell if that's their bread and butter and they screwed up here, then who's to say that any of these firms having to hold their, you know, this this uh, source code repository or even the, the regulators, they're going to definitely screw up and something's going to get released. 100%. And then it's not going to be, you know, I'm not saying that it's the same in terms of the source code is going to be bad information like this. It's just going to it's going to submarine a firm. A firm's just going to be done because that's all their proprietary. That's everything they've developed. So. Uh, it'll be interesting because there's so much that I, I was just looking. I was laughing while Anthony was talking. So I printed out. We like to keep our keep keep ourselves well-versed. We print out the stories we're in. I printed out my opinion piece, and I was looking for the actual stats on data. And uh, last two sheets, just, just empty, just blank white. Apparently, our, our printer doesn't have any ink anymore. So whatever. That's a little behind baseball. But it'll be interesting to see what happens. There's a ton of data that still needs to be sorted through. For me, so, the, for me the biggest disappointing thing was... To have the little genius Lionel Messi get caught up in this, uh, and how many guys do you think are on that list, guys and girls, that are on that list that they just hand off? They don't know the first thing about accounting, about anything. They say, "I'm very rich, but finance is not my thing." Are you, you saying that this. footballers aren't intelligent or well versed in their in their assets? What would you what What would lead you to say that, Anthony? I don't know. Maybe after dealing with them for a long time, but uh... no. To be honest, I think that they probably have a guy that handles it. Lionel Messi probably has a guy. You know, he's got a guy for everything. He's probably got a guy, and the guy probably says, "Hey, Lionel, if we do this and we go here, then we could save." X amount of money. Lionel goes, okay, sure. And, you know, and he signs his name where he needs to sign, and then it gets handled. So does he know the extent? No, but he probably does know somewhat. Mm, this, you know, this probably is reminds me of the West Wing where it's uh, CJ Craig when it's like uh, when Jeb Bartlett, you know, he has got MS, and they ask her, the lawyer asks, do you ask him at the end, is there anything I need to know? Is there anything I should know? Or something like that. And the way you ask that question is important because you're basically saying, don't I don't need to know everything, you know, just just get it done. Sure. Real quick, real quick cuz I want to get this on on film for our non I want to get this recorded. Film, yeah, good call. I want to get this recorded because I want his opinion to be heard by the entire world. National championship occurred, Villanova won for the men. Fantastic game, fantastic ending, probably one of the best endings ever. Um women, the uh the Yukon women won their fourth straight na- national championship, smoked Syracuse in the final. Uh Anthony, what are your thoughts on the two games and which one is better than the other? <laughs> so, I don't like basketball, first of all. I've said that plenty of times. It's just it's a dumb sport. I don't understand. All that matters is the last two minutes. And usually, if it's a blowout, then it doesn't matter. And if it's close, then you start watching. But there's no real reason to watch the whole first part of the game. Anyway, it's my opinion. Obviously, the end of Villanova was the most exciting but if you actually ask me which one was a more exciting or more fun game to watch from beginning to end i'm going to say the yukon women game and i did watch uh, parts of the yukon women game and i didn't watch any of the nca men or the men's game yukon women 
was it's just so much fun to watch a team that dominant because you're literally watching them reach into the chest cavity of the other team, just rip out their soul. There's nothing that the other team can do, and they know it, and it's just fantastic to watch excellence at its highest level, just destroying everybody, laying everybody to waste. I'd much prefer to watch that than, you know, just you score a bucket, I score a bucket. You score a bucket, I score a bucket. I know that this is, you know, most people are not going to agree with this, but that is, to me, the UConn women's championship game was the better game to watch than the men's championship game. So take all bias out of it. Forget the fact that Peyton Manning's on one side and your team on the other one. Not last year's Super Bowl, the two ones prior to that. So uh, the Seattle Seahawks smoked the Denver Broncos in the Super Bowl that was in New York and probably one of the worst Super Bowls of my lifetime. The year after that, Seattle loses to the New England Patriots in an extremely exciting ending. Pretty exciting game throughout, but very exciting ending. Which of those two was the better game? Now, again, here's where the difference. I would agree with you. Oh, No, no, on basketball... It's the nature of basketball. Because of all the scoring that happens in basketball, you know that at the end of the day, there's if it's going to be a close game, both teams are going to have an 80s or 90s of points. You know that going in. So you're just kind of sitting there waiting for them to tick up to that number. As opposed to football, where you have no idea if that game's going to end 10 to 7, 49-42, 49 to nothing. You have no idea. Foot, basketball, you just know one team's at least going to score in the 60s, 70s. Our team's going to score 80s, 90s at least. You know, maybe if, even in a blowout. UConn women, you don't see that. You don't ever see that. That's what makes it special. Is in a championship game throughout the whole tournament, them just destroying everybody, you don't see that. That's what makes it better. I, I completely disagree. I mean, you look at the Final Four in Oklahoma against Villanova, where Oklahoma got slaughtered. It was, I think, the worst loss ever in the history of the Final Four. It was gross. It was disgusting. It wasn't fun to watch. I don't understand what he's talking about at all. It makes absolutely no sense to me, but I had to get him Join to talk the club. about it. My girlfriend says it all the time, too. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, last thing, uh, we're less than a month away now, April 21st. I keep uh, talking about it, but it's definitely a great event. The North American Trading and Arch- Trading Architecture Summit, NATAS. It's at the Marriott Marquis, which is in Midtown, New York, New York, all day, April 21st. It's going to be followed by the Southside Technology Awards. Definitely worth coming out. A ton of great speakers. Anthony will be there. I'll be there. You guys come up to us, talk to us, tell us how much you love the podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, other than that, Anthony, anything else you'd like to mention? That's all I got. All right. Well, that's it for me. So Wait, wait, oh. wait. Good fight. I'm not talking about the Pacquiao fight. If you're a British fan, Anthony Joshua, heavyweight, future superstar heavyweight boxer, is fighting for his uh, first title going up against uh, Chris Martin. Should be a good fight. Huge test for Anthony Joshua. If you're a British fan, tune in. Pay-per-view or... Uh... No, Rare TV. It'll be on... H- here in America, I think it'll be on Showtime or HBO. I think it's Showtime. Um, over in England, I have no idea. <laughs> okay. Nice. So there you go. A little fight fact for you. Uh, well, as always, we appreciate you guys listening in. And uh, until next time, we'll be back here next Thursday. Thursday.